Great Podcast, a show where we take a look at the important men and women of history and decide once and for all if they are worth all the fuss. My name is Jordan. And my name's David. Welcome to episode 1.14, Elegabalus. Yeah, it's a fun one to say. I'll probably change nice how name. I say it a few I like times. That. I had no. a little bit of a chest cold, a little congestion going on, and maybe coughing. So maybe some slight coughing in the background. I will remove what I can, but the man... The man just keeps coughing despite me asking him it's to ridiculous, stop. ridiculous, honestly. Yeah. So, let's get started. Imagine, if you will, a statue is being lowered from its ancient plinth. A crowd surrounds the temple, an angry energy moving through them like a wave. The statue is loaded onto a ship and sailed away from its home city. Days later, it arrives in Ostia, Rome's port city. The people of Rome witnessed the statue's arrival not with the open contempt of those who watched it leave, but with confusion and apathy. What even is this? The people ask one another in the streets. Soon they are summoned to the newly constructed temple, the one they eye with mistrust and a little distaste. There they see the temple's occupant statue now joined with the new arrival. And before them stands a boy, or perhaps a young man? He is dressed in flowing silk robes that are foreign and feminine to the people of Rome. And he dances. Oh, how he dances before the assembled crowd. And soon, senators and other high-ranking officials, young and old, fat and fit, are summoned to join in the dancing. The boy, in his intentionally high voice, calls out that all should celebrate with merriment for this holy union. People are confused, but at least this means lots of free food and drinks. And so the city partied and they made merry because that's what their emperor commanded. Wild. Kid yeah. rolls up and says it's time to party. And you're like, I don't know who you are, but you give me three things. Let's do it. Let's let's just do whatever you said, because there's food and drink and a statue. I mean, I mean you know, yeah, yeah. Like. So it's been a little bit for us, but I think we can get caught up pretty quickly. So Caracalla lay dead on the side of the road near Carhi, the ancient place where other Romans died. His killer, Martialis, lay dead not far away. The Praetorians around the emperor were shocked and appalled. Their beloved general emperor was gone and they had failed to protect him. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, the two Praetorian prefects were super happy that Martialis <laughs> had been killed so quickly. That left no chance to mention their involvement in this assassination. That helps. Yeah. Now, Macrinus and his fellow prefect spent the next couple of days discussing their position. Killing the emperor was well, all fine and dandy, but there was no clear line of succession. Caracalla had been a 29-year-old bachelor with no children. For all intents and purposes, the Severan dynasty was done. But who would replace them? Some might be wondering from last episode why Macrinus was allowed to live after the first prophecy reached the ear of the highly paranoid Caracalla. The prophet had been slain instead of Macrinus, if you remember. Mm -hmm. This was mostly because Macrinus was of the equestrian class. Equestrians were like medieval knights in terms of their rank in society. They're not peasants, but they're not high nobil nobility like the senators. An equestrian simply could not be emperor. This is why Praetorian prefects were almost always equestrians. And why Caracalla didn't take the first prophecy too seriously. However, ah. the second prophecy claiming the same thing would certainly have cost Macrinus his head. 
So he had dealt with Caracalla before the emperor found out about the second prophecy, which you'll remember he got the letter first and went, oh, okay, maybe we kill Caracalla. It's pretty convenient. It definitely helps. Yep. But now the question was this. Could Macrinus declare himself emperor? There are three main things that affected this decision. First, in most legions in Roman history, there would have been quite a few mid to upper tier senators milling about in some role or another, particularly when the emperor himself was leading that army. But Caracalla had disliked and mistrusted the Senate. So he had essentially fled Rome to get away from their nagging, and he was a little bit guilty about murdering his brother, so he wanted to get out of the <laughs> place where is. That, yeah. one is. I generally feel bad about killing my siblings. Right, right. But this meant that Caracalla had almost no senators with him on this campaign, and certainly none with enough prestige to declare himself emperor. Plus, the Senate were some 2,000 miles away in Rome. Remember, Macrinus is out near Parthia right now. And they were completely unaware that they had no head of state for two full days at this point. And if Macrinus acted soon, he'd be emperor before they even had a chance to declare for one of their own. Now, the second thing affecting this decision, Caracalla had spent his six-year reign mainly traveling around the northern and eastern portions of the empire. While fighting those small wars and slaughtering Alexandria, he also reorganized a lot of the administration. Primarily, he broke larger provinces down into smaller ones. This serves several purposes, but the important one for us is this. It made all the governors weaker. With small provinces to oversee, each governor had no more than a single legion at his disposal. Ah, yes, making it a little more difficult for them to do anything. Exactly. This aided Macrinus because he was sitting on the largest standing force in the empire. There was not a single man in the empire who could stop him militarily. The third thing is that the only other person right now who could claim the uh, imperial title was the other Praetorian prefect who said, nah, I'm kind of too old. (laughs) No, that's a smart move. Yeah. He's like, "Mm, well, you know, I've got a few years left. Maybe I just chill. Maybe I don't. Yeah, maybe just collect the money, retire nicely. Don't worry about the drama. Exactly. Yeah. And he did. So Macrinus saw that the path was now open. The senior officers were on board, and on the third day after the assassination, the armies of the East declared him emperor, completely unaware that he had helped kill Caracalla. Um, and no one cared to wait for the Senate's approval. What were they going to do about it? Nothing. Not a, not a thing. Now, I mentioned last time that I would get a Severin family tree for you. Now, I'm a liar, so oh, okay. I don't have that for that you yet, sense. but That's I will a- have that up on thegreatpodcast.net once I finish it. But we will be able to figure this all out without a map. Now, despite the death of the childless Caracalla, there are still several people on the family tree that might have something to say about Macrinus's ascension. First and foremost, Julia Domna, mm. Caracalla's mother. Mm-hmm. She was in Antioch running the admin side of the empire for her son when the letter about Macrinus, uh, the Macrinus prophecy arrived. Now, once she heard about her son's death, she was like, okay, yeah, that was Macrinus for sure. Full stop. At first, Macrinus left Julia Domna where she was. No need to ruffle any feathers with the soldiers or anything, because obviously they all loved her. She'd been married to Severus and was the mother of Caracalla. But Julia Domna was not one to take things lying down, and uh, she was a sovereign woman after all, though she had little time left. Uh, It is speculated that she was in the later stages of breast cancer at this point. Dang, unfortunate. Yeah. She still went about trying to intrigue against this usurper. But Macrinus caught wind of it and ordered that all the Severans and Julia's other family had to return to their homeland of Emesa in Syria. 
Julia Domna refused. Not only was she not well enough to make the journey, she also did not want to give Macrinus the satisfaction of banishing her. So she starved herself to death. That's one way to do it. Yeah. I guess. <laughs> Big middle <laughs> you finger. You can't make me do anything. I'm just going to die. <laughs> All right. Well, it worked. <laughs> yeah. He was like, uh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, with Julia Domna died the last proper Severin of the Severin dynasty. But Julia Domna's side of the family was still alive. Primarily, her sister, Julia Mesa. Like Domna, Mesa was a widow, as were her two daughters. Jeez, that's a lot of widows. Yes. Julia Soamias and Julia Mamea. Okay. Yeah, I'll that's stop. a lot of Julias. I'll, yeah, so they're all the Julias. I'll just start using their, their formal <laughs> names. Um, shame that all these intelligent and wealthy women lacked the proper genitals to rule. And uh, with all their husbands dead, they could not hope to stand against That's Macrinus. Right. No power there. Even if he was an equestrian. But wait! Each of the younger Julias had a son. Mm. Both were quite young, but they would have the eternal wisdom of their grandmother and ambition of their grandmothers at their disposal. Maybe the Severan dynasty was not at an end. This is what was going through Julia Mesa's mind as she packed the last of her things in Rome and prepared her departure. Once back in Emesa, Mesa started the ball rolling to place her grandson in the imperial purple. Mesa had been in Rome with her sister for the last 20 years, and along the way, she and her family had amassed a lot of money. Good for them. As you do if you're part of the imperial family. Right. And fearing upsetting the army, Macrinus did not confiscate the wealth nor execute any of the Julias or their children. He just banished them. This meant Mesa was sitting in her hometown with a massive fortune and a bright young priest of a grandson just waiting to become emperor. This boy was the 14-year-old Varius Avitus Bassianus. However, the boy is known to history by the name of the sun god for oh. which he was a high priest. Meet Elagabal the god and Elagabalus the boy. All right. Yes. a mouthful. It is. Elagabalus was an energetic and passionate young teen. He took his role as head priest very seriously. The rituals he performed were important and spiritual. Now, to the nearby Third Gallic Legion, the rituals were quite the spectacle. They enjoyed watching the dancing extravagance, <gasps> even dancing. if they... Yeah, even if they themselves did not follow El Gabble. Plus, it's always helpful to be familiar with someone in the royal family. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mesa, with the help of a man named Ganes, used this familiarity to her advantage when she set her plans in motion. The soldiers loved the boy and were rapidly growing to dislike Macrinus. They heard that Macrinus had made peace with the Parthians. How dare you? And we're no happier than the troops on the front lines. No, no, no. We kill other people. No peace. There's no peace. No peace. Yeah, and we'll talk about that in a moment. Plus, Julia Mesa said very loudly, Elagabalus is the illegitimate son of Caracalla. That made everyone perk up their ears for the soldiers. This was great news. They love Caracalla and Severus, and they wanted the dynasty to carry on. Uh, this obviously means Caracalla had an affair with his first cousin, Little mm -hmm. Icky. Um, one would imagine that Julia Soameus was not too pleased at her honor being besmirched in this way. Right. But Mesa was a great puller of strings, and she knew her daughter. Promises of returning to the imperial lifestyle would probably be enough for Soameus to play along. That's fair. I mean, a little bit of embarrassment to have another 
life of lavishness. Yeah, better than just sitting in a mesa. Right. It's way less cool <laughs> than Rome. <laughs> and so, on May 16th, 218 CE, when Mesa presented the bright young Elagabalus to the Third Legion, they acclaimed him emperor. Ah, that's nice. Love yep. that. Like, no, no, no. No, you're emperor now. Yeah. Well, I've got army, so yeah. of course I am. Oh, and also Mesa handed out a lot of money. I th- that'll do it. Which honestly, certainly helped. Really. Yeah. Stories differ, but some tellings include the lowborn man Gannes being a major factor in this ploy. Dio says it was Gannes who brought the lad to the Legion's camp and had them proclaim him emperor. For our telling, we'll say Gannes was a longtime member of Julia Mesa's household and helped facilitate Mesa's plans and ambitions. Because nowhere else is Gannes mentioned, only in Dio. Okay. Kind of hard to well, say. So he exists yep. in and, the area. And in Dio's telling, he's also banging Elagabalus's mom. Oh, wow. Okay. So, there you go. Kind of like a stepdad. <laughs> yeah. So while the Julias schemed, Macrinus turned his attention to the more pressing issues at hand. Caracalla had left a mess of the empire for Macrinus to inherit. Aside from the active war with the Parthian Empire, the biggest issue was the finances. Severus had increased the pay of the armies and the Praetorians. This was after the financially ruinous years under Commodus and the civil wars. Then Caracalla had increased their pay even more. Some figures state from 2,000 sesterces per year, which was high, to 3,000 sesterces per year, which was insane. That's a really nice raise. It, oh, can you imagine? Wow. Yeah, 30% raise. There you yeah, go. Just no, give it to 50%. Yeah, half, percent, yeah right. And 50% That's raise. ridiculous. Caracalla had then spent his years fighting those small wars in the north and east, keeping the fuel flowing for the machine. Soldiers do love their loot. Mm-hmm. But it would never last. The empire could never afford to continue paying the men at this rate. Uh, before he could address that issue, though, he had to win the war. While Caracalla's initial invasion of Parthia had been a rousing success, the Parthians had just been biding their time. They were caught off guard, so they retreated to the mountains to regroup. In this renewed campaigning season, they hit back with a vengeance. The Battle of Nispus took place in the summer of 217 CE. It was a bloody ordeal that lasted for three days and left both sides battered. But it was enough to make both sides come to the negotiating table. King Artabanus IV of Parthia walked away with a deal where the Romans would pay him a lot of money to not press his advantage. Interesting. Macrinus was probably seething at having to pay more money, Mm -hmm. but there was really nothing to be done about it. Everything was falling apart. First, as we discussed, Severus had made new rules that the soldiers would serve in the territories from which they came. Ah, yes, that's right. Now, this is wise, as it made the men very happy to stay home with their families. And since the Romans were focusing more on defense these days, it worked very well. You're far more likely to defend the line hard when your wife and children are five miles back. Right, right. Now, it does become a problem for an empire, though, because you need to move your troops a lot. Mm-hmm. You can't fight the Parthians with just the people in the east. You yeah, have to you bring have, huh, all of them. More than one border. Yeah, you kind of yeah. need to. <laughs> yeah, thousands of miles of yeah. borders. So the second major thing is that these men have just marched thousands of miles over the course of years to fight the Parthians. They were winning easily, as they saw it. <laughs> and then their beloved emperor was slain. Now, some upstart emperor had just lost the war and agreed to pay the Parthians. How dare he? It was disgraceful, and it frustrated the soldiers to no end. Finally, you will recall that the best troops were along the Rhine and Danube rivers. Mm -hmm. Those were a large portion of the men pulled east to fight Parthia. And you will also recall that the Rhine and Danube frontiers are almost always under attack, to some degree. 
These men were far from their homes, fighting a pointless war while their families were back home, maybe already raped and killed, and then a peace was signed. As this massive army grew restless and angry, Macrinus found himself putting out fires in all directions. The Parthians were no longer a threat for the moment, but the soldiers were openly mutinous for the moment. Armenia had a small uprising because they were a tad upset about Caracalla imprisoning their king and installing his own man on the throne. Can't imagine why. I don't know why they'd be upset Honestly, about that. It yeah. seems like a pretty reasonable a thing selfish, to do. selfish, really. I agree, especially when there's so much happening in the empire. Yeah. It's like, can you guys Come just on. chill? But Macrinus managed to return the crown and other artifacts that had been taken and make a flimsy piece. Armenia was brought back into the fold as a client kingdom. And as mentioned, the Rhine and Danube were experiencing the usual issues. And now Macrinus had to tell the men about the pay situation. <laughs> By the way, a little bit of a pay cut. We need Aww. to talk. Now, it was clear that the pay could not remain as it was. It was also clear that cutting the pay would result in immediate mutiny. What do you think Macrinus proposed? Oh man, maybe maybe a smart idea would be like a like a gradual cut down, you know, like over a year or two, we're gonna decrease pay just a little bit at a time. You won't feel it that much, you know. It's close, kind of. I don't think uh, he could have gotten away with even that with the the veteran troops. That's fair. So what he went with was current troops. You're gonna keep getting the exorbitant rates. Set by Caracalla. Oh. New troops, you're going to get the exorbitant rates set by Severus. That's the 2000 Sesterces. Okay, okay, okay. So kind of that gradual decrease. Yeah, so the new troops will start making less. Yeah. Now, how do you think they took that news? Um. Well, not, not great, probably. I mean, veterans are probably like, okay, sure, that's fine. But it's probably harder to recruit now. Wrong. Oh, everyone, everyone hated was it. just, just everyone, everyone was hated just it. mad because new troops felt they were underpaid, which is well, absurd. I mean, I guess. Yeah, and then the veterans just assumed it's going to happen to us soon. Oh, he's going to cut ours once he's secure. I see. Slippery slope. Yep. So no one was happy, but he needed to do something. Be like, hey man, so the empire? Yeah, we're out of money. Uh, I can't keep paying you this much. How dare you? Yeah, sir? what if we kill someone who and put someone... You just take we'll more kill, money, right? Kill you, we'll put someone in who can pay us that, that's, right? That's how money works. So yeah. that's definitely what it's looking like. Now, meanwhile, after the protracted peace talks with the Parthians, Macrinus returned west to Antioch. In a letter he had sent to the Senate, he derided Caracalla's cruelty and mean nature. Now, the soldiers loved Caracalla, but everyone else hated him. Pointing out how Macrinus had stood up for many senators while serving as prefect, and also pointing out that he himself had been the victim of Caracalla's slights and rudeness. He made decent points, but really the Senate would have given their seal of approval to anyone other than Caracalla at that point. A quote from Herodian, it was not Macrinus's ascension that pleased them at all, so much as their universal exaltation and celebration at the fall of Caracalla. Mm. So despite claiming some titles he should have waited to be granted, Macrinus was acclaimed emperor by the Senate. Still, his issues had not ended. Money was still tight and the troops still unhappy. And by now, many of them are rushing back west to return to their homes because he hadn't disbanded the army even after the war was over. Word of vicious raiding was flooding to the camps and they needed to know the truth of the rumors and protect their family. Raiding by outside forces? Yeah, back oh, in the okay. Danube region oh, and stuff. Gotcha. All the yeah, troops yeah. that had been pulled east. Yeah, because he kept the army over there. Okay. Yep. 
So he wouldn't disband the army and he wouldn't return to Rome despite a lot of people begging him to do so. Like, just go secure your position. You can put out the fires from there. Mm -hmm. But he didn't. He began styling himself like Marcus Aurelius. He grew his beard long to mimic his stoic look and even emulated what people said his voice had sounded like. But Herodian tells us he was nothing like the philosopher in personality. While in Antioch, he began living the high life of a wealthy emperor. He attended artistic venues regularly and flashed his gold and jewels everywhere. This might have been some ploy to look imperial, but all it did was embitter the troops. Yeah. They had loved Caracalla because he lived the rough soldier life, but the high life was nothing that they looked up to. Then news of the Third Legion's revolt reached Antioch. This is the one where Elagabalus Ah, was like, I'm emperor now. Word of this bastard son of Caracalla out in the east was spreading like wildfire among the soldiers. And did you hear his grandmother is handing out gold like it's nothing? Oh, money, money, let's go. Money, money, money. So defection quickly became an issue for the emperor. He needed to act fast. Word was sent to his praetorian prefect, a man called Ulpius, who was near the Severans at the time. But before Macrinus's orders had even arrived, Ulpius had sprung into action. He captured and executed a daughter and son-in-law of Julia Mamea, Elagabalus's aunt. Wow. Yeah, that'll... Yeah, that'll not playing help, around. I guess. Yeah, <laughs> I'm like, well, I... Mm. Yeah, I don't know. It's like <laughs> overkill a little bit, maybe. Then, Ulpius set off for the Third Legion's camp, where the Severans had taken shelter and awaited the siege. When Macrinus's orders arrived, they were simple. Bring me Elagabalus's head. Oh, well, he's all for the murder. Yep. Ulpius attempted to attack the walls of the camp, but the fighting was hard and no clear winner was quickly found. Then the soldiers brought Elagabalus and his mother and grandmother up on the walls for them all to see. Look, you fools, they shouted down to their enemies. Look with your eyes. This handsome young lad is the spitting image of our beloved Caracalla. Oh, and also we have lots of gold if you defect. Enticing. Ulpius' troops, especially those who had been recruited by Caracalla personally during his campaigning years, these were foreign troops mainly, defected in mass. A few days later, Macrinus met with the Parthian Second Legion to gain their loyalty. He paid them a handsy sum of money and then proclaimed his young son as co-emperor to help show that this was a strong new dynasty. Always wanting more money, the Legion accepted. And right before they left to go deal with this uprising, they handed their emperor a box. Can you guess what was in the box? A head. Whose head? I'm not sure. <laughs> Ulpius's head. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, well. Yeah, it would seem Ulpius had escaped the battle with the third legion, only to run headlong into the Parthian second legion, who was also happened to be defecting at the time. <laughs> And then they said, oh, thanks for the gold, Macrinus. We're going to go continue defecting now. Oh, that's, wow, good for them. Yeah. It's like, why didn't you just kill Macrinus? That's the both worlds there. <laughs> if, you're, if you're there, you have yeah, the chance. But, yeah. So, Macrinus was probably shaking a little bit now. This boy emperor was amassing troops at an alarming rate. Remember how Macrinus had taken power because no one else had the manpower to stop him? Well, now he does. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Elagabalus has enough people now. Macrinus knew he could no longer rely upon subordinate officers and generals, so he marched off toward Emesa to deal with the Severans himself. He hoped to lay siege to the camp, but Elagabalus's numbers were now large enough that the men had confidence in a pitched battle. The two legions who swore allegiance to the boy emperor marched out of the camp to meet Macrinus in the field. Near Antioch, the two sides faced off. 
Dio claimed Ganes took control of the forces under Elagabalus. The fighting was fierce, but soon took a turn in Elagabalus's favor. Elagabalus may have rode out into the field during this battle to rally the troops. Unclear if that's actually true. Now, stories differ, but Macrinus left the field, either during the battle or as soon as it was lost. Either way, sense. yeah, I would run too. Either way, this left his remaining forces to defect as well. On June 8th, 218 CE, Macrinus was defeated and Elagabalus was emperor. Woohoo! Now, Herodian tells us Macrinus shaved his head and beard and donned the clothing of commoners. He kept a few loyal men with him, but otherwise traveled lightly and quietly. His son was sent off for the safety of the Parthians, of all people. Oh, wow. Yeah, not a good look. Macrinus made for Rome, hoping to secure his position and stay ahead of the news of his defeat. Meanwhile, Elgabalus marched into Antioch as the new emperor of Rome. This instability led to several other minor uprisings over the following months, as one would expect. Now, Macrinus was getting close to Rome and would soon be able to mount a resistance to the turmoil across the empire. So you thought. But then he was recognized and taken into custody. His son, meanwhile, was almost to the Parthian king, where he was hoping to find refuge, but he was also captured. The 10-year-old was executed shortly after. Unfortunate. Yeah, Poor child. Yeah. Yeah. Don't want to be that guy. Macrinus found out about this and was obviously devastated. He tried to escape his captivity, but was injured in the attempt. As everyone could now see who was really in charge, the decision was made to execute Macrinus on the side of the road. So that's two emperors in a row who met ignoble deaths far from home. And Macrinus had reigned for about 14 months. Now it was time for the 14-year-old Elagabalus to set things right. That's what I'm talking about. Always get a man-child to run an empire. <laughs> Let's do it. It's always going to turn out well. And in this case, we not we don't even have the man part. We have a child. He's just a child, yeah. I don't know. 14, though, back then. He's like almost, almost a young man. Yeah, he's getting there. Well, let's take a look at him. So, as I said, he was born Sextus Varius Avitus Bassianus sometime in 204 CE. His actual birth date is lost. As mentioned, he was the high priest of the sun god Elagabal. This was a hereditary role, which the lad took very seriously. It was an important role in the region as well. The title of head priest came with a similar title of Lord of Amessa. This meant our young emperor was already technically in an administrative position. Yeah, at least he's, I guess, technically got experience there. Yeah, not sure how much there yeah, of how like much actual authority there was, yeah. but... Now, Elgabalus would have been 14 when he became emperor, and after the battle against Macrinus, he and his retinue began the slow journey west from Syria to Rome. With them came the all-important Black Stone, the central piece of worship for Elgabalus, the god, which should be Elagabal. I don't know why I wrote that. Herodian describes the stone as such. This stone is worshipped as though it were sent from heaven. On it, there are some small projecting pieces and markings that are pointed out, which the people would like to believe are a rough picture of the sun. Kind of sounds like a meteorite to me. <laughs> a rock with some jagged edges. Yep. No, that's the sun. Yeah, it's the oh, sun. Okay. Yep. Yeah, came, sure. It, my theory is it came from the sky, and so it's the sun, God. Yeah. yeah. Either that or from a volcano. Could yeah. Could be like some volcanic yeah. rock or something. Gotta love obsidian. Mm-hmm. Word was sent ahead of the imperial procession. Elagabalus, or more likely his grandmother, told the Senate of the new order of things. The Senate was all too happy to go along with this. That Macrinus guy had a lot of nerve claiming he was emperor, as an equestrian no less. 
sure they were fine with whomever after Caracalla, but for real, can we get Come someone on, equestrian. of quality? Mm. When Macrinus was publicly denouncing El Gabalus's claim to the purple, obviously before his death, he often spoke of the boy's age. In the closing line sent to the Senate from El Gabalus, Dio claims the letter read, quote, he undertook to censure my age when he himself appointed a 10-year-old son. Got him. Got him good. Herodian originally says five-year-olds, but every other source I found said the boy was 10. Oh, so. well, we'll go with 10. Either way. The imperial entourage wintered in Nicomedia, which is in modern Turkey. Various minor rebellions popped up during the preceding months. All fell rather quickly. Still, the enthusiasm for Elagabalus' ascension uh, was soon wearing off. Once in Nicomedia, he immediately began practicing his priestly duties and making a general nuisance of himself. The Romans were all about polytheism, obviously, but someone going out of their way to shove their god down your throat was as annoying then as it is now. His mother and grandmother continued doing their best to keep the kid in line, but it was a difficult task. On top of that, the matriarch was busy cleaning up messes and executing those who posed a threat to the family. It wasn't full-blown purging, but there was a good number of executions that we'll talk about in Terrible Tyranny. But at long last, with the Black Stone and all their wealth in tow, the Severan family headed back toward their former home in the capital in mid-219 CE. Julia Mesa had one concern, however. The people of Rome were not going to appreciate the way their young emperor looked. Not one bit. See, the Nicomedians were also Eastern, like the Syrians, compared to the Romans at least. Mm -hmm. And they found the lad a bit much in his appearance. <laughs> a little extra. Yeah. Okay? You know, you need to calm it down a little bit. See, the priests of Elagabal wore flowing robes, which is all well and good, except that, like differences in many cultures, this, what Syrians saw as a robe Romans saw as a dress, okay. female clothes. Uh, the aging matriarch tried on many occasions to convince her grandson to change into more imperial looking clothes. I'll wear a purple dress then. Right. It's fine. <laughs> well, because obviously robes look like dresses, but purple togas are very masculine. Right. Cultures obviously. are fun. Completely different. <laughs> Completely different things. But they were to the Romans. Elagabalus, being a 14-year-old, who had been in a position of local authority for years, and who was now technically the most powerful person in the world, refused. Frankly, his concerns for the priesthood of Elagabal far outweighed his concern for being emperor or whatever. That's right. This is the material role. I'm already the high priest of the sun god. Yeah, okay. Very That's important. Much more important. And, you know, it's just kind of a, haha, look, I'm the emperor. That's true. And this would continue to be true throughout his reign. He really liked Elagabal, and the rest was all kind of secondary. Julia Mesa eventually gave up on trying to change the boy's mind. Instead, always the pragmatic type, Mesa sent forth a painting of the new emperor. She instructed it be hung in the Senate chambers so the men could get used to seeing their boy ruler before he arrived. Perhaps it would soften the shock. Yeah, maybe, I guess. Got a little bit of a preemptive look there. Yeah. <laughs> he looks a little different, but just get ready for it. That sorted, Mesa turned to her next issue, Ganny's. This is the lover of Mesa's daughter and the one who helped in the battle at Antioch. Mm -hmm. You will notice that in this royal family, there are a lot of women and a couple boys. And in a male-dominated world, Ganes found a position to claim a bit of the power for himself. He began acting as though he held the prerogative in decisions while the Julias and the emperor himself were background players. And Mesa knew she had to do something. Yeah, not great. However, situations soon spiraled out of her control and somehow still played right into her hand. 
Dio tells us that Ganes was named Caesar, likely as a placeholder since he was the only adult male in the picture. Mm. He was also the one who helped orchestrate the ascension of Elagabalus. But Dio tells us Elagabalus loathed this proto-stepdad that he had. He hated the man, quote, because he was forced by Ganes to live temperately and prudently. <laughs> and he himself was the first to give Ganes a mortal blow with his own oh. hand, since no one of the soldiers had the hardihood to take the lead in murdering him. Okay, wow. Now, as mentioned, Ganes is only in Dio's telling. Dio does not like Elagabalus. But what I've seen, I don't think he actually was probably the one to murder Ganes. That's just from what I read. Not but the first-hand account anyways. Yeah, more likely Ganes was getting too big for Mesa's liking. And she found a way to get him executed before he could seize control. Mm. Either way, Ganes is now out of our story, and the emperor is just about to arrive in Rome. And remember, the capital has not seen an emperor in around six-ish years. Yeah, I've been on the road for so long, assassinated on the road. <laughs> and Macrinus never made it back, so this was going to be a big ordeal. In Rome, there were naturally celebrations as the emperor and his family arrived. The Senate did their part to look happy. But already their taste was soured against this feminine boy who dressed in women's clothes and literally danced around as he went. The portrait that was sent ahead did not quite have the effect that Mesa had hoped. It kind of worked, except that they hung it in a spot where the senators burned incense and did their <laughs> rituals before meeting. Okay. So it was kind of like worshiping him. And oh. that put a sour taste in their mouth. Oh, yeah. Like, that's not the message I was trying to send. Yeah, not good. We're not at the part where emperors are viewed as deities in life. Yeah, that comes later. Gods yet. Yeah. On top of that, the boy emperor had sent a decree out before his arrival that whenever an official was performing a sacrifice for anything, Elagabal needed to be mentioned first. <laughs> Another thorn in the sides of many. Yeah, another trying to shove my religion down your throat. Yes. Still, surely all that can be forgiven with some wild games and lots of money being thrown around. Mm -hmm. Straight away, Elagabalus ordered donatives and celebrations. And of course, he ordered the construction of a new temple for the sun god and its black stone. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. To solidify his god's position in Rome, quote, Each day at dawn, he came out and slaughtered a hecatomb of cattle and a large number of sheep. Now, a hecatomb is an ancient Roman and Greek term for slaughtering a lot of cattle. <laughs> I okay, think a hundred is, is the specific <laughs> number. But yeah, I was you like, a hecatomb. said each day? Yes. He's just waking up and trying to murder. I think during the celebrations is my guess. Oh, oh, oh but, that makes sense. But still. <laughs> that's a lot. Yeah, that's a lot of Imagine the smell of ancient cities. Not just with all the dead animals. Yeah, blood all the and time. Just feces. feces. Yeah. yeah. Mm, anyway. Tasty. Now, high ranking officials were required to take part in these religious displays. Some obviously would have felt highly honored by this being brought before the emperor to perform religious duties. But a lot of them felt very uncomfortable. And a few were outwardly who outwardly expressed their disapproval. Uh, soon found themselves as dead as the cattle. Nice. Like, I don't think I want to do this. You can join them. What was uh, that? No, no yeah, I want to slaughter all the hecatombs of cattle. Yeah, that's right. Yes. Every hecatomb. Now, very shortly after arriving in the capital, Elagabalus decided it was time to settle down. What 15-year-old could live without a wife? Exactly. The Julia Cornelia Paula was her name. But no, that won't be on the test. Almost as soon as they were married, the two were divorced. <laughs> 
It's unclear when or why exactly. We kind of have to go off coins to figure it mm. out. But by 220 CE, Elgabalus had his eye on a new woman. Was oh. her name also Julia? Uh, no, actually. Oh, okay. <laughs> Finally. Break yeah, the no, chain. We're, yeah, we're breaking it. We're breaking <laughs> it. Um, a woman of virtue, though. A woman of godly heights, such Perfect. as himself. Now, can you think of which women might fit that description in Rome? Uh, well, like the Holy Virgins? The Vestal Virgins. There you go. Yes. A Vestal Virgin would fit just fine, Elagabalus thought to himself. That's the purpose, yeah. Now, uh, he claims to have fallen in love with the Vestal Virgin, Aquilia Severa. He soon announced he would be marrying her and moving her to his chambers in the palace. This was viewed with outrage. Yeah, I don't think the people would like that. No, the uh-huh. Vestal Virgins. Yeah, their purpose is to stay clean and pure, whatever. So they can like, yeah, worship do their the worshiping and they're properly. so trusted that they do all the document management mm-hmm. of the empire. Yeah, this was not okay. How could a pious young man possibly besmirch the honor of a sacred woman? Not to mention the risk to her life. Uh, believe it was Domitian who exercised the ancient punishment for breaking their 30-year celibacy vow being buried alive. Oh, wow. Yeah. No, thank you. So this, you know, he was actually putting her at great risk. But Elagabalus brushed off the outcries. A marriage between a priest and a priestess was a sacred thing, obviously. Yeah, for real. She's holy. I'm holy. It's perfect. It's going to be just fine. Plus, and most importantly to him, this would be a marriage of the god Elagabal and the god Vesta. Mm. Only good could come of that. That's right. Herodian says, quote, he sent a letter to the Senate excusing his great impiety and sin, but saying he had fallen victim to manly passion and was smitten with love for Severa. And besides, Elagabalus, as always, cared far more about his priestly role than his imperial one. None of his religious moves ever really seem in any way calculated from a political perspective. Oh, he doesn't care about the politics of it. Correct. Fortunately for him, his grandmother was still in the background pulling the strings. Somehow, she convinced her grandson that it would probably not end well if he continued on with Severa. Like his first marriage, his second ended within a year. Wow. Wow. He just took a Vestal Virgin, married her, and then was like, oof, not working. Yep. Now, the, this whole period is shaky in the historical record, so we do not know for certain how Severa felt about all this. Uh, there is reason to believe she was forced into it, obviously, yeah. and some historians even call it rape. Regardless, it was very bad for all parties involved and helped worsen the exasperation that was bubbling up amongst the people and Praetorians. After the first two disastrous marriages, one might expect Elgabalus would give up, but he did not. Ania Faustina was her name. She grew up in ancient villas built during the age of Sulla and Marius, before Caesar's day. Her family was powerful and wealthy on both sides, and she even had a fairly close link to Marcus Aurelius's direct Ooh. lineage. And as it happened, she was married and had children. Oh, well. Very different than the Vestal Virgin. Her husband was Pomponius Bassus, and he too was wealthy and powerful in the elite circles. Dio tells us that Elgabalus caught a look at Faustina and fell deep into love, or more likely lust. Right. Subsequently, quote, Pomponius Bassus was condemned to death by the Senate on the charge of being displeased at what the emperor was doing. For Elgabalus did not hesitate to write this charge against him, even to the Senate. 
calling him an investigator of his life and censor of what went on in the palace. Quote, the proofs of his plots I have not sent you, he wrote, because it would be useless to read them as the man is already dead. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So several others were executed in this particular roundup, but it would seem this opened the door for the emperor to snag his next bride. It is important to note that this dark telling may be conflating several things. Bassus might have been executed for treason, and then a couple years later, his widow was deemed a good fit for the emperor. After all, Mesa and the other high officials around her had forced Elgabalus out of his marriage with the Vestal Virgin, mm-hmm. so why would they not have a replacement right. ready? In any event, Dio goes on to say that Elgabalus married Faustina very quickly, leaving her no time to mourn her recent loss. The loss of her husband and the father of her children. Who needs to mourn? You're the empress now. Yep. Well done. Congratulations. Yeah. You're moving up in the world. Now she was married to the 16-year-old feminine monster who had just murdered that husband and father, and she had to smile about it. Mm-hmm. Again, bear in mind that this is mostly Dio. Dio does not like Elgabalus, but he continues, quote, He appeared both as man and as woman, and in both relations conducted himself in the most licentious fashion. And it was at this point in my reading that I became completely familiar with the term lacuna. Lacuna? It means a missing piece of a book or writing. Oh. And Dio's chapter on Elgabalus has a bunch of gaps during this portion. One of my uh, copies just saying lacuna in each of those spots. Just, just so it's just lacuna. like lacuna, Gone, missing. random know, word man. or two, lacuna, yeah. random word or two. Yeah. We have we have bits and pieces of this parchment. Yep. So he behaved in a licentious fashion, and then we get that word or two, and that's it. Mm. Um, there is record showing that he eventually leaves Faustina and goes back to the Vestal Virgin. <laughs> and I just it occurred to me that I didn't put that in the script. So that happens after the, all of this. This man just wreaking havoc. Yeah, yeah. So now happily settled into his third marriage, Elgabalus set about arranging a fourth. <laughs> Not for himself. That'd be crazy. Oh, it would be just insane. Yeah. Instead, he sought a bride for his son God. For the God. Mm-hmm. For the sun God. Yep. Okay. Now I know what you might be thinking. Didn't the sun God marry Vesta when right. the emperor married Severa? Yeah, but they and, got divorced, so you know. Well, it, yeah, the answer is kind of, but not really. And according to Elagabalus, whatever I want is what's happening. Well, yeah, he's the high priest. Right. Yeah. So Herodian tells us that Elagabalus moved the statue of Pallas to his personal quarters. From what I can tell, Pallas is a synonym for Athena. Huh. warrior goddess yeah. could be wrong about that but the statue was very sacred to the romans it was kept out of sight and revered herodian says that the only time it was moved before was due to a fire now it resided in the emperor's personal chambers as a weird marriage prop for his own god the god which he had put above all others even jupiter naturally everyone was very upset then he had the gall to separate the two <laughs> the gods that just married yeah he oh. said this peaceful sun god could not be married to such a warlike goddess but you but you knew this before the marriage that and imagine telling the romans that their god is too warlike yeah that's what the romans do that is, they were incensed <laughs> that did not dissuade the teenage emperor from seeking out a new bride for elagabal <laughs> and he soon found one the Carthaginians oh, no. had a statue of Urania, which they revered. The myth went that the statue was carved as the city of Carthage was built. 
Hmm. So it meant a lot to them. Mm -hmm. She was also a moon goddess, which fit perfectly with the sun god. Sun and moon, hand in hand. You know, Elgabalus is like, guys, that's perfect. That fits. When the order came that the statue was to be shipped to Rome for the marriage, it was met with outrage. I can imagine. When the local populace was informed that all the gold in the temple was also being taken, (laughs) they were beside themselves. We're going to take the statue that you believe was carved with your city and all of your fortune. Yes. Thanks. Bye. And when Elagabalus declared that the people of Carthage must pay a large dowry for the wedding. My God. They were downright flabbergasted. That's not how that works usually. You No, usually the the, the wife's family oh, pays a dowry. Right. They, yep. pay, they pay you to yep. take their to, daughter. To take the Thank daughter. You. Yes, <laughs> yes. Oh my God. Yep. So I'm taking your statue, all the wealth accompanying that, and a dowry, please, and thank you. You're welcome. Yep. Be sure to come to the marriage yeah. or to the wedding. Once in Rome... The gods were married. Festivities were ordered to be held publicly and privately. After all, how often does one get to partake in the marriage of two gods? This is obviously the opening scene. And I said statue in the temple of Elagabal. I don't know if they had a statue for him, but they had the stone for sure. Right. Some sort of representation. Something was representing that god. Now, during this festival, something caused kind of a crush and a few people died. But, you know, that's unfortunate, of course, but no need to stop the celebrations. Now, during this and other public events, Elagabalus liked to dress in the uniform of the Greens, that is the chariot team, Mm -hmm. and ride around in his chariot. This was slightly less shocking by now, thanks to Commodus setting the precedent, but it was still a bad look. Slaves drove chariots, and Mesa did her best to keep this practice behind palace doors. What really bothered people was his use of makeup. Painted eyelids and rogue on the cheeks made the handsome young man look like a pretty young woman. How dare he? Not a good look in the hyper-masculine world of Imperial Rome. Worse still, Elagabalus was not simply riding in chariots and wearing women's attire. See, Elagabalus had many vices, and he showed no embarrassment or concern with enjoying them publicly. And one such vice was that of athletic men. Oh, just... Yeah. In fact, he liked lots of men. All of the men. All of the time. This next bit is most likely hyperbole, but Dio says this, quote, he would go by night, wear a wig of long hair (laughs) into the taverns and ply the trade of a female huckster. He frequented the notorious brothels, drove out the prostitutes and prostituted himself. Wow. Yeah. Not a good look for a noble. Very, very bad look for the emperor. Correct. (laughs) Then he goes on to say that later they set up a little brothel in the palace. The original working from home. Love that. Again, probably not entirely true, but he liked men Mm -hmm. and he liked the lot of them. At a chariot race, one of the drivers fell from his chariot and landed near the emperor's box. The slave's helmet fell off and Elgabalus immediately fell for him. The man, who was probably a little banged up from the crash, mm-hmm. was hustled back to the palace. And quote Dio, and there by his nocturnal feats, he captivated Elagabalus more than ever and became exceedingly powerful. Good for him. This man's name was Heracles. He would garner a significant amount of power in the years to come, especially for a slave charioteer. The emperor, having sex with men, was not unheard of. Trajan and Hadrian had a preference for men and boys, and it didn't really seem to bother anybody. But Elagabalus was breaking the cardinal rule about homosexuality in Rome. 
You must be the dominant one. Yes. And it wasn't just the sex that portrayed the emperor as the submissive one. Apparently, Elgabalus insisted upon marrying Heracles. Oh, my. And not only that, he was going to be explicitly the woman in the relationship. That's very against societal norms. Yes. He Not wore great for fem- him. No, horrible for everyone involved. <laughs> he wore female wedding garments and submitted to his new husband publicly and privately. Wow. Who was a slave charioteer? Yes. Man, the people are loving him. Now, he also continued in his adultery, as one would expect. Oh, yeah. Isn't he already married for the third time? Yes. Right, 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 right. Elgabalus continued committing adultery, of course. And more quotes from Dio here. He would often allow himself to be caught in the very act, in consequence of which he used to be violently abraded by his, quote, husband and beaten so that he had black eyes. His affection for his, quote, husband, that's Dio, was no light inclination, but an ardent and firmly fixed passion, so much so that he not only did not become vexed at any such harsh treatment, but on the contrary, loved him the more for it and wished to make him Caesar in very fact. So he's being beaten up like a like a woman as mm-hmm, society mm-hmm, would say mm-hmm. and he's cool with that because he wants to be that just a straight-up masochist yes at one point another man was found who had a very large member shall oh, we say okay this man was brought before the emperor as a potential new favorite <laughs> when heracles learned of this he set about poisoning the man's drink God. but not with anything lethal what oh. do you think what do you think he put in the drink a laxative? Close. Yeah, that, that would have been my first thought, yeah. too. But what he put in there was something to make sure the large member didn't get a part in the show that evening. Ah. Elagabalus was appalled at the thought of this man being unable to perform, and he was kicked out of the palace and just kind of hung around Rome for a while, <laughs> hoping that he could get another chance. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm just not usually like this. Wait. <laughs> I swear that has never happened. Just give me one more try. As a final piece of Elagabalus's very unorthodox behavior, we hear a tale, again from Dio, that would fit much better in today's world than in the world of the 200 CE. Quote, he carried his lewdness to such a point that he asked the physicians to contrive a woman's vagina in his body by means of an incision, promising them large sums for doing so. Wow. Yeah, it is from this line and the stories of uh, Elgabalus's femininity and homosexual conduct that has led many to think of Elgabalus as transgender. Sure. Of course, back then they had no such term, mm-hmm. and the people of Rome and the Senate and the army really saw nothing but depravity. From like, this what is going teenager. on? Yeah, not good. Now, you're probably wondering, how is the empire still running and holding itself together at this point? Things were rocky under Macrinus, and this kid doesn't seem to have the chops for the job. But you must remember who is running the day-to-day in the background, Mm -hmm. Julia Mesa. Mm -hmm. Mesa was helping to ensure her grandson's indiscretions did not ruin the family or the empire. But she was rapidly losing control of the situation. Elagabalus was a man by this point, far harder to control than the teenage boy who had ascended, and even that boy had been difficult to control. Now, everyone was fed up. The soldiers who had helped put him in power were sick of him. The third legion, the first to come to his side, had revolted and been disbanded by this point. Things were getting very tense, and everyone could see it, except Elagabalus. I mentioned that Elagabalus wanted Heracles to be his Caesar. Mm-hmm. For all the obvious reasons, that would not do. 
The Praetorians were already fed up with Heracles' high authority, and the army was not pleased with other appointments Elgabalus had made in the ranks of the officers. He liked appointing those whom he rather liked than those who were, you know, good fits for the job. Who needs qualifications, really? Exactly. It's all a meritocracy. They can do sex good. So That's I right. put them there. Mesa approached her grandson with a counterproposal for Caesar, and she knew it needed to work because she could sense the danger uh, that maybe the emperor could not. Should her grandson fall without a proper severing heir, she and her family would at best be cast out as ordinary citizens once again, and at worst be executed by the new regime. Mm -hmm. The proposal was for the last male on the Severin family tree to become Caesar. This was the son of Julia Mamea, Alexander. Oh. This cousin of Elgabalus was now about the same age as when Elgabalus had become emperor. 13-ish. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Mesa pointed out the benefits of this assignment. It keeps things in the family. It frees up the emperor to focus on his priestly duties, which he cares so much about. And it calms down some of the rumblings from the troops, though Elgabalus did not really care about that. Some stories claim Elgabalus threatened his grandmother's life when she brought this option to him. Wow. Yeah. Regardless of the truth of that, he eventually gave in. And we'll talk about why a little bit later. He formally adopted his cousin Alexander before the Senate. And then he declared him Caesar. The two then shared a joint consulship in 222 CE. One would have hoped that this would resolve most of the tension within the palace, but it did not. Some listeners might now be wondering where Elgabalus' mother has been during all of this. His grandmother was taking a very active role, but Soamaeus was somewhat absent. This is because Soamaeus was right alongside her son, not making any friends. <laughs> She was a strong supporter of the religious reforms and eccentric practices of her son. Even when popular support was drastically waning, she either could not or would not hedge her son's behavior. This left Mesa in an awkward spot. Her daughter and grandson were verging on losing the empire. She had Alexander propped as next in line, but he was still a child. If Elgabalus was removed in the next few years, they would have a serious issue maintaining control. But then something interesting happened. Shortly after being declared Caesar, Alexander's popularity with the Praetorians and the people shot through the roof. They adored their young heir. He was everything that his cousin, the emperor, was not. Mm -hmm. He was pensive, calm, respectful, educated in more Roman-focused things. It would seem that Alexander might uh, just have a shot at taking power should the opportunity arise. And then... Elagabalus died. Hey, opportunity arose. <laughs> and we will see what happened for that during Departing Demise. What do you think of our boy? Wild. Like most other child emperors just doing their own thing. Someone else running the show. Yeah. Pissing it, everyone off. Just making everyone mad. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Not good. And don't worry. We have, a, we have another <laughs> child coming soon. Yeah, but at least they like this one more. Seems like he'll be a better fit. Mastery of Military Might. Elgabalus' regime came into existence with the Battle of Antioch. Mm -hmm. Some stories claim, like I said, that this battle was looking bad for the Severans until the 14-year-old charged out on his horse and rallied the troops. Whether or not that's true, they did win the battle and gain the empire. Then part of the reason Elgabalus and the imperial entourage stayed in the east for a year was due to the number of mutinies and uprisings that they had to put down before they could safely return to Rome. As mentioned, the very legion that supported him soon turned to revolt, along with a few others. These were all put down, 
but it was clear that the Severin hold on power was tenuous. They no longer had a Severus or Caracalla to keep the army and Praetorians in line. That's about it. Um, obviously, military affairs were not the focus of this emperor. At all. Yeah. Not even a little bit. Nope. So what do you think? It's it's hard to even, like, rate it. Yeah, I would I would go with one. Yeah, I was... Yeah, I'm one. There's nothing... There's just, like, nothing there. Yeah, I agree. He didn't suffer any super losses, obviously, I guess, but... I don't know. There was revolting. He he didn't. He wasn't a military person by any all. by any stretch. Yeah. That's for sure. All right, easy one. Terrible tyranny. So we'll start with uh, some yeah, of the more standards. <laughs> well, not that many. <laughs> we'll start with the more standard bits of tyranny before moving into the special Elgabalus stuff. Mm. Dio names a good handful of people executed shortly after the Severans regained control. This sure. might have been Julia Mesa. But kind of typical. Yeah, honestly. I was going to say like a standard procedure That's here. what happens. Yep. Yeah. Elagabalus uh, may have killed a man on false charges so he could claim the man's widow for himself. That would be his third wife. Mm-hmm. Uh, random one here. When actors had sex scenes to perform during a play, Dio says he ordered the actors to do the deed for real. It's like, no, no, no. I want to see you actually have sex on stage right now. We need to do this. You're actors. Pornhub in 220C. Wow, just live. Mm Mm-hmm. He was kind of a usurper. You could consider him that. Yeah. Uh, he had Macrina, had Macrinus been more popular, he certainly would have been viewed as a usurper. Mm-hmm. Uh, he elevated his god above all others. Yeah. He created a proto-monotheism in Rome uh, that was going to be a very hard sell, especially when the person selling it is so contrary to public opinion. Mm-hmm. He married many times in his short four-year reign. One of these women was a vessel virgin, and that would be kind of like forcing Mother Teresa to be your wife. Just not a, it's not good. Now, he enjoyed playing practical jokes, as children often do. Right, right. Now, many of these, all of these, come from the Historia Augusta, and I've been avoiding using that source as much as possible because it's mostly just bullshit. But they're fun, so let's see. Quote, when his friends became drunk... He would often shut them up and suddenly during the night let in his lions and leopards and bears, all of them harmless, Yeah. so that his friends on awakening at dawn, or worse, during the night, would find lions and leopards and bears in the room with themselves. And then he, there's a semicolon, sometimes they died. (laughs) (laughs) An afterthought, sometimes it didn't work out. But all of them harmless. It's You're just harmless. a prank, bro. Yeah, What's I was just whole, kidding. Why are you, so why are you bleeding so much? It was prank, a joke, dude. dude. I'm sorry the bear ripped your throat out. It was just a prank. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so he would often put wood or wax food in with the real stuff to see if anyone would take a bite. And then he would eat his real food while they pretended. Yeah. Just a dick. <laughs> yeah, just dumb. Now, there's one other major piece to these jokes that we will talk about in Lasting Legacy because it fits there more. So okay. I'll, I'll come back to that. Now, next, he was openly bi or homosexual and had no issue playing the, quote, part of the woman mm-hmm. in those relationships. Adamant, even. Yeah, insistent. Yeah. This cannot be understated as an affront to the ideals of Roman virtue. Our society today is hardly able to handle LGBTQ people in power. But back then, it was frankly amazing he lasted that long. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Julia Mesa. On top of his sexual escapades, he also elevated his favorite lovers, notably Heracles, whose push to authority enraged the Praetorians to no end. He also wished to make this slave his heir, Mm -hmm. which was unthinkable. It also hurt him a lot that he was 
openly into that submissive role we discussed with Heracles. He tried to remove his cousin as heir. Uh, we will look into this more again in Departing Demise, which ah, will give you a hint about how I that came what about. what might have happened. So, Terrible Tyranny. It's not the worst. It's not the worst in terms of, like, genocide Murder. and stuff. Yeah. But it's pretty bad in terms of society. Yeah. And how the people, like, view him. Mm-hmm. All their morals that the society had. Yeah. Mm. It, was, it was definitely... Very bad to the people. More on the terrible side than the tyrannical side. Right. Yeah. yeah. I'm thinking just because it's it's a good number, a seven or eight. I was gonna go with a six or a seven. Okay. You choose one, and I'll 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 go with one higher than that. Okay. <laughs> so I'm gonna go with six then. Okay. Go I'll go seven. seven. Yeah. Because yeah, it's like dang, it's hard. It's hard to compare it to the straight up genocide. But you just gotta take into account the the total society impact. For real. That is a 13 for Terrible Tyranny. On to the next. Lives of the Living. So the pros, uh, with Julia Mesa at the helm, things ticked along. The revolts were put down. Mm -hmm. Cons. The army was still grossly overpaid. The economy was only helped slightly by the fortune of the Severin family, and things were still not good. The people were confused and then furious at this boy emperor making a disgrace of the purple toga. Uh, He did not massacre people, but things weren't getting much better. That's about it. Yeah, just kind of status quo, except I really don't like this emperor. Who is he? Yeah. And yeah. And why is there a woman ruling it? I don't Mm -hmm. care if she's doing fine type deal. Yeah. So uh, Caracalla got a five and a three. And it's kind of in the same boat, except he's not leading the armies. Yeah, I was going to say a four. I was thinking a four. Yeah. Yeah. So that is an eight for Lives of the Living. Not great, but not the worst they've been. (laughs) Nothing's getting better, except the people are just getting more angry. Yeah. (laughs) Departing Demise. Okay. So we left Elagabalus having just declared his cousin Alexander as heir. Mm Mm-hmm. Begrudgingly, the, yes, apparently. against his will, and we'll That's see. Right. We'll see how that came about too. <laughs> the two then settled into their joint consulship in 222 CE. Now, Elgabalus tried pulling his cousin into the priestly life, the way he lived. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. He pushed the Syrian clothing on Alexander and tried to encourage him to dance around and make <laughs> merry like the emperor did. Wasn't Ale- having it. Yeah. Well, Alexander's mother, Mamea, was having none of that. It was unbecoming of an emperor to dance around like a child. Oh. While Elagabalus' mother was content to be an empress and let her son do whatever he liked, Mamea had spent her time raising her son right. Oh, yeah. Proper schooling for a proper Roman, including speech and wrestling and all the things normal boys did. Mm-hmm. A, lot, can, a lot of words here. Yeah, you can feel the tension yeah. in this palace. <laughs> Elagabalus did not like this at all. When he learned of the teachers Mamea was bringing in to educate Alexander, he threw a fit. Herodian tells us that he ordered the tutors out and even executed a few of the more oh prominent God. ones. God. Yeah. <laughs> hey, can you come teach the soon-to-be new emperor some things? <laughs> How dare you? How dare you? You're dead. It would seem the emperor no longer liked his choice of heir. Throughout his reign, he had also been appointing lowly people to many positions in government, as I mentioned. Heracles was the most powerful, but there were many actors and slaves who were put in administrative positions generally reserved for equestrians or senators. Mm. Now he wished to change his heir, placing Heracles in Alexander's position as he originally atten- intended. 
that's not gonna go well. Nope. But a quote from Herodian. When all that was once held in respect was reduced in this way to a state of dishonor and frenzied madness, everyone, and particularly the soldiers, began to grow bitterly angry. They were revolted at the sight of the emperor with his face made up more elaborately than a modest woman would have done, and effeminately dressed up in golden necklaces and soft clothes, dancing for everyone to see. The Praetorians now looked happily upon Elgabalus's cousin and heir, wouldn't it be nice if he were emperor instead? But Elagabalus soon learned of the Praetorians' preference for Alexander, and he set about bringing his cousin's downfall. This naturally only polarized the sides even more. Mm-hmm. Mamea would no longer let her son Alexander eat anything sent by the emperor. Fair, smart, yeah, very intelligent. <laughs> and the Praetorians, yeah, he might not be able to get a heart on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, that was crass. I hate that. This is a teenager we're discussing. And the Praetorians were also on high alert for any foul play. It would seem they would protect the life of the Caesar over that of the emperor. This power struggle between Soameus and her mother, Mesa, might have been going on uh, even in the previous year of 221 CE. Soameus, again, being the mother of Elagabalus. There is some evidence that Elagabalus and Soameus had attempted their own kind of coup against Mesa's power. They removed several key figures of Mesa's regime on trumped-up charges. This might have worked, too, had Elagabalus and his mother been more popular. As it stood, the banishments of Mesa's people did not limit her control. The Praetorian prefect at the time cautioned the emperor from continuing down the path against his grandmother. <laughs> She's scary. You're like, hey, man, she's just going to kill you. Like, yeah. You should probably stop. You should probably just knock it off. So the emperor backed down and soon found himself forced to name Alexander his heir. Dio tells us that during this abortive coup, the Praetorians also forced Elgabalus to give up many of his favorites. When Heracles was ordered to leave the palace, <gasps> the emperor openly begged, the quote, straw. grant me this one man, whatever you are pleased to suspect about him, or else kill me. Well, okay. <laughs> well, they granted his request and Heracles was allowed to stay. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. so, but everyone else had to go and Alexander's your heir now. Shut up. Yeah. Herodian says this of Elagabalus in the early months of 222 CE. With the failure of his contrivances, Elagabalus planned to remove the boy from his position as Caesar, and no longer was he to be seen at public salutations or at the head of processions. The Praetorians were not at all impressed. Nope. As Alexander suddenly disappeared from public life, they grew wary of their liege. What do you think Elagabalus did when he learned that the Praetorians were becoming vocally upset about this situation? Removal slash execution. New Praetorians. No. No. Elagabalus told them that Ele- Alexander was dying or dead, <laughs> he's, depending on the story. No, 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 he's, he's dead. Uh, yep. He's, uh, yeah. No, he's, you he's guys don't need again. to worry about him anymore. Yep. He's yep. dead. This is probably uh, the worst thing he could have said. Mm-hmm. Because if Alexander was dead, then everyone would assume the hated emperor had killed him. Yeah, yeah. And, and if Alexander was not dead, then everyone would rightfully be pissed at the hated emperor for, for lying, for yeah. lying about it. Yeah. Like bad move. Just not a good move. Now, do you think Alexander is dead? No, you don't. No, I do not. OK, <laughs> well, the Praetorians certainly wanted to know the proof of the matter. They refused to stand their assigned guard shifts for the emperor and instead locked themselves up in their camp and demanded Alexander be physically brought before them. At their personal place of worship, the Shrine of Mars. Mm. Obviously, this was a dig at Elagabalus yeah. and his sun god. 
Soon, the imperial litter arrived at the gates of the camp. After all, what could Elagabalus do but show up when the men with swords demanded it? The soldiers waited to get a look inside and see if their Caesar was alive and well. And he was! Yay! Called it. Nailed it. The men cheered and doted upon the 14-year-old like their own son. They guided the procession through the camp to the shrine, very deliberately not speaking to or acknowledging Elagabalus. The party spent the night in the shrine with the men, a show of good faith, I suppose. But really, it was a threat and a temporary imprisonment. You're staying with us tonight, Mm -hmm. and the Caesar's going to be safe. Yep, because we're going to make you. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) So the emperor spent the night stewing on the insults he was taking from these men. Alexander and his mother had been plotting and conniving in the background for years, and now his own guards were turning against him in favor of this child. (laughs) Says the 18-year-old. This is the one that had the same thing happen to right. him. The next morning, he demanded the men who had enthusiastically cheered for Alexander be arrested immediately. It's not going to go well. Well, feeling this kind of power struggle, some of the men did as instructed and arrested their comrades. But not happily. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The camp began to grow hostile. Yeah. Soon, Soamaeus and the Praetorian prefects had arrived. Of course, Heracles had been there at his wife's side from the start. Attempts to calm things down did not go well. As mobs tend to do, the Praetorians suddenly grew violent. Stories differ, but it would seem Elagabalus saw the writing on the wall and attempted to flee the camp. His entourage, including the Praetorian prefects and his beloved Heracles, were slaughtered while the emperor and his mother ran. Wow. Yeah. Just kill them all. Yep. Got to clean up the mess. Dio says something about Elagabalus trying to hide in a box or something. <laughs> Didn't quite get. And another story mentions him hiding in a latrine. Hiding. Yeah, hiding. <laughs> Whatever the truth is, the Praetorians cornered the 18-year-old, raised their swords, and Soameus stepped in. The empress held out her hand and ordered the men to stop. What do you think happened? Kill them both. Praetorians cut them both down <laughs> in about two seconds. Yeah, they're like, don't do it. Well, well, <laughs> you made your choice. Yep. Dio then says, quote, their heads were cut off and their bodies, after being stripped naked, were first dragged all over the city. And then the woman's trunk was cast off in some corner while his was thrown in the Tiber River. Those loyal to the emperor and his mother were sought out and killed. Elagabalus had ruled for about four years and died at the age of 18, leaving his 14-year-old cousin to take the purple. Yay, the cycle continues. Kill all the former supporters. Let's Start get them. <laughs> Didn't we do this four years ago? Yeah. yeah. Let's do it again. Woo. So that's that's the departing demise of Elagabalus. Oh, man. I think it's a pretty good one. Um, anytime there's a, a, a slaughter, you know, it's a, it's a good time. Yeah. And Gotta what I love, love about this one is it's it's his fault. Yeah. Like it was purely his fault for making the choices he made despite being told, don't do that. We have control. Stop being stupid. Yeah, he literally should have just been like, hey, Alexander's my Caesar. I'm going to train him for the next couple of years. I'm going to go back to being my priestly duties, mm-hmm. living a life of what he wanted to live, doing what he wanted to do, build priestly things, have all the money and comfort, and someone else is in charge. But it no. It been great. Yep. He won't do it. I'm going to give it a nine. A nine? Yeah. Caracalla got a nine and an eight. 
You think I remember how he died? He was stabbed while taking a poo on That's the side funny. of the road. That's right. That's right. And now Elgaballus died in a latrine, perhaps. Perhaps, but hiding. Yeah. And his mother, the Empress, was slaughtered with him. <laughs> and the prefects. Yeah, it was, a, it was a big old slaughter. I'm going to give him a nine. It was. It was a slaughter. I'm going to give him an eight. Okay. He's match- surprisingly matching Caracalla in a lot of these things. All right, that is a 17 for Departing Demise. On to the next. Lasting Legacy. Okay, there's a lot to talk about here, but uh, let's get to the thing I mentioned before about the pranks that he liked to pull, uh, because there's something that some people are probably waiting to hear about that Elgabalus is often attributed to, Mm -hmm. and that is the invention of a whoopee cushion. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. So this is one of those things that I also had heard about and was like, ooh, I can't wait to like see the historical record of like what this is and like what he actually did. So it's not true. Oh, okay. Well, Um, but here I'm going to go through like what, where people get it from and why it's easy to make a clickbait article saying Mm -hmm. that he did. Okay. The only source I could find that talks about it is the Historia Augusta. Which already tells you we probably shouldn't believe what is said. And here's the quote. At dinner parties, some of his humbler friends, he would seat on air pillows instead of on cushions and let out the air while they were dining so that often the diners were suddenly found under the table. (laughs) Under the table. Yeah. So not really a whoopee cushion. (laughs) A deflating seat. Yeah. You know. And it doesn't say anything about him inventing it. Just, yeah, that's true. Yeah, just that he used it. <laughs> just a cushion that could be inflated and deflated by slaves. Sure. What, what we have. So there's that. It's not real, but it's one of those things that he's known for anyway. <laughs> Other important things. If the reports are true, Elgabalus is likely the first transgender person who ruled a major nation. Yeah. Unfortunately, it did not endear him to his people, but it is still a feat. Mm-hmm. He also started what would become a multi, multi-century shift towards monotheism. Yeah. This is not to say that Elgabalus was thinking about, like, the Christian god or anything, but he did try to place Elgabal above all the other gods, and he also came from the region where Judaism and Christianity originated. So he's probably influenced a bit. He plays a small part in what will be a massive change in the religion yeah. of the Western world. Yeah. Because we go from polytheism everywhere to monotheism, monotheism just like everywhere. Just, taking charge, yeah. Yeah. Um, if nothing else, he played a huge part in facilitating female rule in Rome a thousand years before there would be an official Roman empress at the head of government, and that would be with the Byzantines. Julia Mesa uh, played her part to perfection. Had her grandson been less interesting and like fun to talk about, I probably would have covered her instead. Mm. It's just hard though because they don't like the sources don't talk about her. Right, she's a, she's, like she's a mentioned background. thing. Yeah, yeah. But she's she's doing all the stuff, but in the background because right. it is still a very male dominant society. Of course. Now all the Julias are fascinating for the mere fact that they were actually recorded by their mm-hmm. male contemporaries. They're doing stuff that yeah. they deemed were worthy of talking about, which is rare. We rarely ever hear about women in these histories, except that they are the female counterpart to whatever man we're talking about at that moment. Julia Domina ruled alongside her husband and son and then gave Macrinus the finger and starved <laughs> herself to death like a badass bitch right. when he told her to pack up and get out. Julia Mesa then ruled the empire in the shadow of two grandsons mm-hmm. until she died a couple years after Elgabalus. 
Julia Soameus was probably the worst of them. She had vices and allowed her son to indulge in his own vices. And then Julia Mamea uh, will go on to guide her son through his rule as well, even after Mesa dies and leaves it all on Mamea and Alexander. But we'll look at that next time. Yes. And that's that's about it. Hmm. It's, uh, you know, there's stuff. The, the transgender piece is interesting. Um, I don't know that it's like a huge piece to his legacy. Yeah. And it's kind of assumptive. And it is. You're taking a couple steps, but yeah, and know. and relying on Dio, who doesn't yeah, like him, and is trying history. to say mean like, things much, about him. Yeah, how much information is really true? Right. It's interesting, though. Um, I would probably go with like uh, three or four. Sure, I'll go with a four. I'll go with three. Then we'll keep it. Yeah, keep it there. So that is a seven for lasting legacy. What do you think the score is for our boy Elagabalus? Mm, really close to the last one. Actually, a bit lower. A bit lower? Yeah. Oh, probably for the military. Might really took a dig there. Yeah. And a couple others. Oh, I don't know. Not great. Yeah. 47. Yeah. Oof. Oof. Caracalla got 69. Oh, nice. nice. But, uh, yeah. So, pretty lower. low. Uh, the only one lower is... Oh, we almost had a record. Yeah, we almost did. Well, 39 is the lowest, and that's Julianus. Yeah. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> and what was this? 47? 47. Yeah. yeah. Yep. And then there's one in the 50s. Mm-hmm. Nero. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it makes sense. He really didn't. He just didn't just didn't do anything. Yeah. For he, or against the Empire. He was yeah. just like, mm, I'm just going to do what I want. I'm, I'm going to have sex and worship my God. Uh-huh. Those are the things that I'm going to do. Yep. All right. So we have the final questions. Um, the great... Is he no, the great? Definitely okay. not. Okay, good. definitely not. That makes it easy. Here we go. Now I don't have like I finished this script like right before we recorded, mm-hmm. and so I didn't get any epithets thought up because I couldn't like none like popped. Yeah. So we need to think of something, and we could go with something simple like Elagabalus, the you know the sun god or the boy, or um could say the transgender if you really wanted to. Could say the colorful. <laughs> that'd be that'd be playful. Yeah. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, because that, that ties into the homosexuality, the uh, his dress itself, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and okay, the colorful. It's kind of a pleasant <laughs> name for someone who doesn't go down very well. Yeah. Well. Uh, it's yeah. It's hard. Like you could we could try to like creep into the stubborn territory just because they you only know, did what he wanted to do. Yeah. I don't know the selfish, but that's not. It makes it sound worse than it is. The obdurate. Yeah. <laughs> obstinate. Yeah. One of those. It's like, I just, I'm just going to do what I want. Yeah. What about the know. obstinate boy? The obstinate boy. Sure. Cool. We'll go with Elgabalus, the obstinate boy. And uh, not the great. No. And one of our worst scores. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. For, for sure. Yeah. Well, that's, that's about it. We have a lot to talk about next time. And, um, I have to decide who I'm going to cover because there's a lot of interesting players that are coming in. Well, maybe we make it a, a two, a two parter. No, it's just a lot of people will die. It's fine. Oh. We'll just we'll just cover that. <laughs> okay. We'll just decide which ones die first, and I won't talk about them as much. Perfect. All right. Well, thank you guys so much for listening. Hope you enjoyed. I'll try to not have such long breaks. Yeah, we'll see. It just it happens. Life. <laughs> yeah, life happens. So, but uh, thank you. Goodbye.